Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. everybody. Our guest today is Simon Hargis. Simon is uh, the owner of First Settlement uh, Physical Therapy. They're in West Virginia and Ohio, I believe today. Uh, they have 28 or 29 clinics, about 150 employees. The unique thing about Simon is he is a second generation private practice owner. So that means he grew up uh, in, a, in a private practice family um, and got to see the business grow uh, for years before taking over. And I believe 2014. Since you've taken over there, Simon, we've gone through a lot of growth, and I'm really looking forward to asking you about exactly what you did to make that happen. Thank yeah, you. great. Uh, that's uh, that's a pretty good, pretty good synopsis. Uh, PT school, uh, got my MBA, and then around 2014, after a few years of practicing, uh, treating patients, just went full time into uh, managing. Great. Um, so yeah, I, I did write that down. I see so your you have. PT, DPT, OCS, and MBA, a lot of letters, double digits and letters after your name. Uh, so I want to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, but first, I want to ask you, what, what was it like growing up in, uh, in a private practice household? I believe your mom started the practice. Is that correct? Yeah, she did. It, it, really in tandem. My dad uh, had a pension for business. Uh, he was the engineer. My mom just loves PT. She'd be doing it for free on the side of the street if, if she couldn't otherwise. Uh, she's working in a health system or hospital at the time. The health system wasn't really a moniker anybody was using. Uh, they asked her to put a business plan together. She doesn't know anything about business. The engineer, what my dad did, uh, she presented it. They said it was way too aggressive. Uh, so uh, she quit, took a second mortgage on the house and tried to do this business plan. <laughs> and so so they have that that kind of, that glory of the the, the big risk to start the first few clinics um, and, and stabilize, you know, the, a smaller operation. And what year was that? Oh, 25 years ago. Uh, they actually went through a cycle once where they started a clinic, sold it, worked for a few years for somebody else, hated it, and then started again. So about 25 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So that would be mid 90s, 95, mm -hmm. 96, something like that. And yeah. uh, do you mind if I ask you how old you were when that happened? Oh man, so I'm 37. So yeah, a kid. I mean, this has been, uh, you know, designing a business in the outpatient world, it's budget, it's hiring, it's staff. It's been my dinner table conversation since, I mean, six, seven years old. Yeah. Like that's, that's just, that's just what we talk about. But, uh, do, do you remember uh, anything from the early, so you were 12 years old. I mean, you're basically riding a bike, not even driving at that point. Um, what, what was, what was that like growing up in that environment? Um, you know, hanging out on the parallel bars, waiting on them to finish stuff instead of, uh, instead of hanging out on the playground, talking about, you know, interviews and hiring processes and budgets at a, you know, an age that I don't think anybody's usually exposed to that kind of stuff. Um, I think they did a good job keeping the stress away. I also think we joke a lot that the 90s was a lot easier to do this than, than maybe now in terms of reimbursement rates. Um, but um, man, it was great. I think it just made us a really close family because we had such an interesting thing to talk about all the time. As you were growing up, was there a, a certain point where you decided, hey, this is what I want to do? I want to 
uh, I, I went into college uh, dual track, PT and art. And, and as, as my friends started graduating and being baristas and you know not having a job, it solidified, all right, let's do the family business thing and the PT thing instead of the art thing. <laughs> that, that, that was your art degree friends that were doing yeah, that? Yeah, that was my art degree friends. They're like, hey, this isn't so much fun after you get out of school. Yeah, That's great. And just as my wife just dropped me off a tea from Starbucks. Uh, yeah. Excellent reference there, Simon. Um, <laughs> the, so you, you've been a PT for uh, quite a few years now. Um, you took over in, in 2014. And mm -hmm. I, I think at that point you had uh, 11 clinics if yeah. my research was correct there. Correct. What, uh, what did that, um, what was the transition like? Did you work in the business for a few years right out of school? Um, how did you ascend? And then when did you decide to, uh, to take over in terms of the transition? You know, the, uh, I started off a couple years just doing uh, patient care during the day. It, you know, this has always been the family business. So to some extent, I was involved in decisions and discussions since high school. But I think then I transitioned to part-time when I just had to make more day-to-day -day decisions and they were uh, chucking me more things. Um, it got to the point where I couldn't treat anymore because I was doing so many ads. I couldn't make it through a treatment session without getting a phone call I had to take. So that's forced the issue for me to go all admin. Um, and then it just turns out they... Um, uh, my dad enjoyed retirement more than running the business at that point. And he started having grandkids and said, hey, this is more fun. Go do this thing. Um, uh, and, uh, but that was the, tra the transition, I think, especially relative to other people's experiences, is I really couldn't, at some point, I couldn't treat the way I would want to treat because, and at the same time, I couldn't run the business like I wanted to run the business. I couldn't do both. I had, I had to really do one or the other. Very fair. Um, yeah. You you talked about your dad retiring uh, to help the grandkids. How many other siblings do you have? Just me. Oh, yeah. is that how yeah. many children? How many children do you have? Uh, oh, I have two kids, but it's okay. I'm the uh, yeah I'm the uh, I'm the only uh, child. So, so you had to take it over. I had to take it over. <laughs> uh, my mother's from India as well, and uh, there's there's a lot of tradition wrapped up in being the only son. It, it was it was maybe not as optional as I. As, as I made it out to be in the story. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, so today you're at 28 clinics, 150 uh, employees, team members. Uh, back in 2014, when you took over, any idea of how many uh, staff you had at that point? Ooh, 11 clinics worth, but some of our big ones, uh, way, way, way under 100. I'll say 60, give or take. Okay, Yeah. Uh, very fair. And uh, when you took it over, what was your if you can reflect back six or seven years ago, what was your vision for uh, the clinic at that time, the company? Get to 15 clinics. Okay. <laughs> get to, you know, get to 15, make it real, real stable, something like that. Yeah. Okay. You made it. That's yeah, great. I made it. <laughs> um, cool. So in the article that you forwarded, um, and I, I appreciate you doing that. It's on a, WebPT, by the way, they, they did an interview with uh, Simon about a year ago. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes for everybody. But you talked about uh, growth. And it, if my math is right, you're doing a, a clinic every five or six months um, yeah, yeah, for the last seven right. years. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's not as quite as linear. I, you know, you get good at things, right? So we've actually done 
five in the last year, right? But it, you know, it kind of escalates. Yeah. So you've done both, uh, did you talk about growing through de novo or opening new clinics, new locations, mm -hmm. and then also acquisitions. Uh, let's talk about de novo first. Well, first of all, is there one that's more of your wheelhouse than the other? Yeah, de novo is more of our wheelhouse. We had to learn how to do it. We're still, in the, I would say, in the learning phase of acquisitions. Of all our growths, we've only done four acquisitions. Okay. So with de novo, um, how, how do you think about that? How do you think about the next, well, you're probably in it right now. Oh, yeah. Um, how are you thinking about the next locations? Um, you know, uh, operate, I guess, especially when I talk to other practice owners at, you know, various events and, and things uh, to frame our business is so we're we operate in West Virginia and Southeast Ohio, which is low population density. So I feel like some of the problems we're trying to solve as a practice owner, as a manager, are sometimes different than maybe a metropolitan area or an urban area, which is um, staff, how to find staff, how to then support that clinic with staff um, um, and how to have enough volume, you might not have any competition, which, you know, and you might find a place that's insanely cheap. I can rent things for $8 a square foot in some of the counties I'm in, but uh, is, is, the, um, um, is the volume there, uh, which, which tends to be, um, you know, maybe that's a similar question for others, but it's different because we lack the competition. Um, are the people spread out so much that they're not going to come to a centralized location. Uh, but yeah, when I look at de novo in a, in a really urban or rural area, um, I guess a quick and dirty, if it has a high school and not much competition and a grocery store, it's, it's worth at least kicking the tires up, right? Um, and if it has some minor competition, then you got to kick the tires harder. But if it's a big enough town and then you look at the surrounding county and um, and you look at the roadage, especially in a rural area, you know, is this a place a lot of the smaller roads are funneling in to get to a bigger road, right? Um, and maybe you look at that everywhere. But uh, I think that's, that's one of my easiest screens, a high, a high school and a, and a grocery store. Not that we're drawing a whole lot of patients from the high school, it just, it speaks to the you know, population density. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. We're, we're very similar. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm a little bit behind the race, but uh, yeah, we, we do the same thing um, and study traffic flow. The, the rent was fascinating because uh, on a recent podcast episode, I was interviewing somebody and their rent was uh, $60 plus per, per square foot. My heart. <laughs> so you, you definitely have uh, d different economics um, and, and different struggles, as you said, uh, but that's great. So once, once you decide to you find a high school, an untapped area um, with the ideal traffic flow and it's the right setting and it's something that you know and you decide to pull the trigger opening up there. What's your pro the process that you work through with your team to open up a clinic there? Yeah, you know, um, I, I guess in parallel, right? It's, do I have staff? And, and I like to grow in a very particular way um, and, and that we work in networks of clinics that are very close together one of the ways to keep costs low on a de novo that you know might be risk or you're not absolutely positive about is what can I share staff between an established clinic to get this thing going right um, so your labor costs are down and and so so or am I you know have I hired somebody specifically for this place and you know are they trained but in parallel to that is a lot of the logistic work of of finding a site 
right? How much, how much work is it going to take to, um, to get the, the inside rebuilt, uh, working out the lease? Um, uh, because it's hard for me to work backwards on a budget until I really know the terms of the lease and the rates and, and that kind of thing. We even, you know, we're, we're at some point you're at scale where it makes sense to have a pretty robust, um, you know, maintenance crew that can do some small level construction. So I can go to a place and really get a much better lease if I can say, hey, look, I can do the drywall and I can do the painting and I can do the small electric on the inside of this thing. And I could probably even lay carpet squares down because that's not high skill labor. And you can negotiate a much better lease if you can contract some guys yourself to do that kind of work. And, and in West Virginia and Ohio, it's, it's very easy to, to be able to do that. Great. So, so I think that's the first steps is, you know, staff and logistics. And then we start, we, at this point, we even have a list of, hey, here's our list of de novo stuff for your base clinic and I put give that to a PTA where one day a week all he does is our ordering um, and then I have a marketing team where for a de novo clinic you know they have a check mark list of things uh, that they need to order in terms of half folds the doctors and how we're going to market this thing um, and then across between that marketing team and the IT team they have a checklist of websites and getting the google up and going uh, in terms of adding it to the search and, and doing a postcard. Um, so it, it's nice that I think one of the reasons it, it starts growing exponentially is because you work in those efficiencies and we take good notes off a previous one and you can work in those checklists, then you're not forgetting to uh, get a washer and dryer hookup. You're not forgetting to do these things and it, and it can work, um, you can get more done. Wonderful, yep. Uh, I can relate to the de novo checklist as well. That's uh, yeah. pretty smart. Uh, easy to forget about the washer and dryer. We use, up. and I, I remember using <laughs> tools. We use, we ended up, we've gone through almost every project manager software out there. And the only one that's really stuck with us, and this is a, you know, I'm not trying to sell it, but I, I have found for that kind of stuff, Monday um, is, 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 works really well for us. Um, it, it, what's, it really, what's it called? It's called monday.com. Okay. Uh, it's really brought those different departments able to coordinate and, and, you know, you can copy paste lists from old projects and archive them in a way that uh, has helped us a lot. Yeah. You talked about uh, IT, your IT team. Um, yeah. I, for a lot of owners, they'll say our digital marketing team, I assume that's what you mean with, you, you mentioned website, Google SEO, et cetera. Yeah, and it's a funny um, it's a funny transition because we have this long history where we were you know very small one clinic all the way to you know medium sized practice regionally right um, so our first IT guy who's who's now our IT manager started off as a tech and then helped learn how to do some computer stuff but what's really helped us and what I think is fascinating efficiency in it is our IT guys are also our graphic designers. So our IT guys are by, by training graphic designers. Um, and we just started with one that was literally part-time tech and learning that stuff as he went, he had an interest for it. And then we could, he could just be full-time that. But what that helps is, okay, you have, might have a computer issue. They set up our printers. Um, they work with our EHR. Um, they help set up phone contracts and fax at the same time to fill in the gaps of work. Cause I think sometimes in PT it's like, 
I don't need an IT guy. How am I going to fill up this time? Um, they also double as uh, our videographers. Uh, we make our own TV commercials. Those are guys the ones shooting it, editing it, doing it. Uh, they double as you know our guys designing our flyers and setting and designing our website and making changes. And when you have when you can figure out a way to share enough cost to have that resource on site, it gives you a whole bunch of um, tools that other places don't have. I, I'll give you an example. Let's say my therapist says, oh, this patient came in or this doc called saying we didn't, they didn't realize we do dry knee blood. The next day, because I have in-house this IT graphic guys that had the option, they can have a full color um, flyer with that PT's face on it and big letters saying dry needling that we drop off to that doctor's office within 24 hour turnaround. That sounds like a luxury, but if you can bake it into your budget where it's not too expensive, it opens so many marketing doors because you can be reactive on that level and reinforce things in real time and, and then establish habits and, and keep it in their mind. So we do a lot of that where we have these feedback loops where we'll hear something from the staff, from an office manager, and we'll turn it around into a Facebook bag or a graphic or change it on our website or a flyer and get it out there very quickly. And I, and I think that's really helped us a lot. And that's always been, that's, that's something my dad being an engineer worked on from the very first clinic. That's always something we try to do to have that in-house and be able to be very reactive. So when I say IT, how in the world do you feel of it? Is we fill those guys' time with both the graphic and the IT side. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, and I, I love the scalability of it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it started off as a tech slash Scott, and now we have two full-time graphic slash IT guys, right? And they do everything from in the Stenovo process getting all the contracts together, setting up to where our second person, we actually hired a guy that worked at a screen making facility. Um, so he's doing all the decals on windows and designing these signs. And so all of our clinics have these awesome decals on these windows because we can just put them up ourselves and we can change them ourselves, uh, which might not seem, again, it might seem like a luxury, but when you're not, um, when, it's, when it becomes affordable, you can really do some, awesome things on your store frontage places by, by changing those things and making it really graphic. Excellent. Um, that is unique, Simon. I, I don't think I've ever talked with anybody about that before. The, you mentioned 2014, you have about 60 team members uh, today. You've grown and scaled to 150 and you have plans to grow here uh, and continue to grow here in the near future. And if I yeah. caught it right, you opened five clinics since COVID started. Yeah, that's remarkable. <laughs> if, if, there, if I can do an applaud or something like oh, a parade that, for you, that, that would be amazing. Um, so congratulations. I, I think the part day. of that, I, I, you know, the only part of that, I think, and, and we've talked about this before, that maybe I'm most proud of or as a commitment to our employees. We've done that on, on no debt. Other than the PPP loans, we're debt free. And I... I have That's, a ton of questions for you about that. It's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, you, I think you and I share very similar financial viewpoints in terms of how we can grow and scale uh, safely. The question that I want to ask you about the 60 to 150 employees, what has changed for you in terms of a leader, in terms of the way that you communicate with your team from ha running a clinic with 60 employees versus running a company with 150? Man, night and day, uh, a ton of lessons. You know, if you go back to 
that 2014 period and even having 60, you know, I went back to school and got my MBA, honestly, not even that useful other than the leadership classes. If I had this, you know, uh, looking back and it was a lot of, you know, we had a little baby at the time and it was just a gruesome amount of work to get through it. Uh, the only thing I use every day out of that MBA uh, course is the leadership stuff and the communication stuff. Uh, you know, because, you know, you can have an account and you can have these things and, and it's not that hard to watch a YouTube video and understand how to, you know, uh, read a P&L. They're, they're not complicated. They're just intimidating for clinically minded people that haven't taken that class. But um, the communication stuff, the team building, um, to me, is that operational efficiency has everything to do with being able to grow. Having people communicate from different departments, how to set up those feedback communication loops. Um, and at some point for me, we got too big where, you know, originally at 60, we had each clinic had a director. And our version of directors, I think, are a real director light. They don't have many duties. They're a real canary in the coal mine model where their job is essentially if they spot a problem, run it up the chain, you know. I'm not, they're not burdened with a bunch of admin hours and thinking about budgets and stuff. Um, um, and they had a designated people to run it up the chain. At some point, even that didn't work and I had to transition into regionals. Um, and being able to recognize that, I, I don't think I would, I've probably recognized it too late um, uh, because it, it took you, you know, real time to train people to be able to, to fill that role well. But if you don't have those clear communication pathways, you just you just lose too much. Um, but even on the um, you know the leadership side, um, it's it's really easy to disappear when you have enough work and and not and lose touch with everybody, and, and you can't let that happen because then um, trust and faith in the company erodes. And you have to find ways to have that internal marketing and communication, even from the top, even if you have these different layers of bureaucracy between you and everybody, or um, when it comes time to ask them to do something hard, the buy-in isn't there. That's a super valid point and one that I wanna dive into a little bit. Yeah. Um, so 11 clinics, you have 11 directors, and they all probably have a direct communication line with you at the time? Yeah. Pun. <laughs> so now with the, the 28, uh, 29 clinics, how many regional directors do you have today? Four. Okay. So four. You have we're a, about to start a fifth region, but yeah, four. Okay. So essentially each director has five or six locations. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they're communicating with four or five or five or six directors yep. each as well. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Um, in so, and it's funny that you brought up the MBA because I specifically wrote that down. I wanted to ask you about it. Mm -hmm. Was it worth it? What did you find most valuable? And you already answered that uh, with the leadership and communication. As a, it, what year did you do that? Uh, let's see. I kind of think when my, my son was born, because it was like that first year. Uh, he's five. So yeah, like right at this, right as I was taken over, like 2014. Okay. You know. Great. So what you had experience working in private practice beforehand you then go to the mba school um get the degree earn the degree and then you're coming back and applying a newfound knowledge you talked about the leadership and communication most of us kind of feel left out from that experience and i i've even had conversations with owners where they'll say oh i need to go back and get my mba yeah, yeah. 
so with, <laughs> uh, with with the leadership, is there a model that you learned or is there a place where we can go? Is there a book that we can read to uh, try to shortcut that a little bit? Oh, you know, a, a shortcut at 100 percent. And I even did an MBA that was healthcare administration specific. It wasn't like a generic e economic one. And, and it was just it, just 80 percent of it wasn't wasn't that practical or useful. I mean, you learn a lot of accounting stuff and financial stuff. And, you know, if you want to work as a VP at a hospital one day, I think it would have been a lot more useful because they got over a lot of that. But um, yeah, the leadership stuff was, was, was the crucial and they go over a lot of different types um, of leadership management styles. Um, um, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you a couple of books in an email. Maybe you can put it in the links because I don't have them off the top of my head, but the, I think the most important process of, of something like that, if you're in a good program or you're doing it, is choosing the one that fits you is the first thing they go over. So there's a lot of management styles and leadership styles. Um, and if you pick one on paper that says, oh, this sounds, this sounds great, but it doesn't fit your personality, it, it's, it's, not, it's not gonna work. I, it, to me, you really have to pick a management and leadership style that also fits what your personality is capable of. Um, because because they really do require different things, and I don't think there's one. Um, I don't think there's one that's necessarily um, better than the others. Other than you know we're in a people business, and I've always thought of physical therapy as, and maybe this is controversial. I, I don't know. I don't think our product is physical therapy. I think our product is our staff. What do you mean by that? So the development of our, not just our clinical staff, our, our, our non-clinical staff and the environment we recreate and the things that they do and the, the way they talk to people and, and treat them, both from marketing, success, growth, running and training those people and making those teams ends up being a product. That's like the first settlement physical therapy product more than physical therapy as a product. I remember I was at a, maybe a PPS or a send or something and the guest, the keynote speaker got up there and had nothing to do with PT. And he got up there and said, Hey, I did a Google search of physical therapy and here's the word bubble, or here's the first 20 words that came up and they were wildly different. You know, here's a yoga based practice or some Kinsey based practice. Here's all these different versions of physical therapy. And, and, and his point really aligned with, you know, reflecting on, on development and leadership and, and making sure communication is strong was that what physical therapy is, is actually kind of amorphous compared to other industries. You know, uh, what, you, what you actually get treated with from clinic to clinic to clinic. But so to me, at least when I'm managing or thinking of it is my, my product is really the staff and, and how they speak and what they do and some of their training, you know, obviously and we'll have, have certain theories, but I'm not even, I don't even really dictate on um, um, how they treat or the classes they take, but I do, I do dictate on a certain way they, they speak, certain level of customer service, a certain level of, of logistics from start to finish. I, I, that's the best I can articulate it, but in my head, the, the people are the product, not physical therapy. That's, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I'm wondering if, uh, did that change for you over time? Like, yeah. It, 
as you became more of the, um, and I don't know your official, is it CEO? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, CEO, COO, CEO, I, I think is probably, if you looked at my day, what I do, but I, yeah, usually go by CEO, but I'm probably more like an operations guy. Yeah, so for most owners um, that are the visionary type or the operations type, one, one of the key roles, or both, as you mentioned, one of the key roles is getting the right people in the right seats and ultimately mm -hmm. building teams. And it seems like that's pretty similar to what you're talking about right now. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's uh, that's that's pretty close. I, I still think they, um, especially going to these practices, I really think they uh, underestimate that part of it and overestimate overestimate the well. All we got to do is is get into this one class and they learn this skill and that's our product. And uh, and you talk to docs or you you do even when you're going out there and trying to drum up the direct to consumer stuff, so much of this in getting new business is not that, you know, that, uh, that it ends up making me say, Hey, physical therapy here isn't really the, you know, the product. Uh, but I, I guess the way that I'm describing it, the other thing is I came from a very, I was formally trained by my father who was an engineer in the exact opposite way. He approached this in a very Henry Ford way. We have, we're completely, we're best friends. We live across the street from each other. We're diametrically opposed on, on how this should be run. Uh, uh, he, he really thinks of a, each person as a cog, right? You train them and they should be replaceable. And on Monday, if you need to replace them, then, uh, you know, just like, cause he worked in plants for 20 years. Um, and, and up until I took over, that was very much how it was described. Yeah, the, uh, let me take a stab at this because I've studied management just a little bit. I yeah. do not have an MBA. I, I don't even pretend to have one. But um, the so yeah, if you look at management books from the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, they were very top-down mm -hmm. type leadership. But just from talking with you and your team in the past, Simon, I, it's almost more of a Kaizen leadership where you realize that it's uh, you know we're in the um, we're in the intelligence or the intellectual, uh, it, more managing teams, putting the right people in the right place and helping them have the resources that they need in order to deliver the, the final outcome, which is the patient getting better. Yeah, I completely agree. I also find what you're describing more scalable than the top-down part, yeah. right? You know, if, if, if you just have more horsepower over time. Yeah. yeah. So is that, when you talked about studying for your MBA um, and the different types of leadership that you get in to that, the top-down versus Kaizen, they probably use different terminology, but. You know, honestly, I can't even remember some of the vocabulary for it and it's only been <laughs> six years. Uh, I get yeah, it, that's all good. Yeah, yeah. like, uh, you know, I could probably write a pretty decent SWOT analysis as the closest I could I could get to referencing stuff out of the class, other, other than a lot of those general takeaways of of management and leadership. And I still reference a few of the graphs. Um, um, they, they had some really nice ways of how to um, rehab and develop people, you know, and, and, you know, are they in a category of they're doing some things by mistake and they need training versus they're um, not giving things the attention they deserve and mistakes 
they make are based on effort versus, and, and, and okay, the category determines what kind of feedback they need. All that kind of stuff, I think, um, ends up being insanely helpful um, Great. in management. Wonderful. Um, just as a point of reference for everybody, SWOT is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and trends, I believe. Uh, I think not, yeah, T might be something else, but that's the gist of it. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember. Again, yeah, it's funny <laughs> how that goes out of your head. But again, I mean, I think that goes back to your point because I, I run a, a lot around a lot of people too that see that. It's like, oh man, maybe that's the missing piece to this exponential growth. I, I, I didn't find that. I, it gave me some confidence that I needed um, to, to step up and say, hey, I'm in charge now. Um, um, uh, you know, letters help that sometimes, but that, that was more for me than I think it was, that was useful. Yeah. And you, you put the work in too, to yeah, earn it. Yeah. So that usually helps with the confidence as well. Yeah. That's great. Um, so any, anything worthwhile talking about in terms of acquisitions, um, in terms of, I, I kind of see right now acquisitions on the rise or at least that M&A market really, really, I, it, I, I think the pandemic forced owners to think about, hey, do I really want to, you know, go through this as a lone wolf or, you know, should we partner with somebody? Can you talk a, a little bit about what you're seeing in the market and then maybe also shed some light, Simon, on what you look for in an ideal partner of somebody that you're merging with? Yeah, yeah, um, all, all great questions. Um, so in the market, again, you know, I'm in a particularly rural market. And it's the first time I've seen M&A on this level, right? Private equity's never been interested in Southeast Ohio, West Virginia, and now they're they're around. Um, so the uh, level is high. The level is high, even okay. even in even in a, in a rural market. I mean, uh, when I say high, three or four years ago, absent, uh, you know, to um, happening every other month. Uh, uh, so I mean, just just night and day. Um, and, and so, you know, when we're looking to partner with somebody, it, it is a very different thing because we're not the high dollar bidder, which means what the person wants out of it is probably really different than, than you know, a lot of your traditional large companies, like we're going to take a 70%, you're going to keep 30 and that 30 will be worth more than the 70 eventually. Um, but they, they really want you to stick around for a while. Um, that's often not um, necessarily what we're looking for. Um, be, we, we can't really easily be that option. We can't afford it because at, at that kind of multiple or that kind of acquisition price, if we really wanted to be there, honestly, it's a lot cheaper to do de novos and compete. Mm -hmm. um, when, when we end up looking at, at practices, it's because maybe they want to exit or maybe they're an owner and they own the building and they want a long-term lease and be out. Or maybe they just have a different um, two of our acquisitions, one was a retirement, one was a health system that had so many back taxes, they were given like three months to just exit the state. And it was an acquisition out of necessity where they couldn't find anybody that could take over that clinic in like two months because it's a huge operation. And we just, you know, I volunteered and said, I'll, you know, I'll do it. Um, so weird circumstance. Two others, the owners, um, were kind of serial entrepreneurs and they were just ready to try something else. And weirdly enough, some of the something else they had going on um, uh, 
worked well with us coming in and taking that brick and mortar over while they did other things, right? So I think at least for folks my size, when I, you know, when we're looking to partner, um, um, it's, it's, it's out of a unique circumstance and not necessarily that traditional M&A because that traditional M&A um, is, it, it prices, you know, somebody like me out of, out of what, uh, what we would offer pretty quickly. Does that make sense? Uh, a ton of sense. You're, you're unique. You're operating, really, you're a niche acquirer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Um, and I, it also, for me, I think the other unique part about it is the way I like to grow very amoeba-like. Again, I don't, I find it not impossible, but much riskier to have growth where that clinic is not um, in a network of marketing or in a network of other clinics, um, if it's a one-off by itself, um, right? And, and I think that adds to uh, limiting who I would look to grow because I like it to be in the existing network. So, um, and just to clarify, amoeba-like is going to the next town. Yeah, 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 sorry. So, so my original I was really a batch uh, biology major, art major, right? So it's, yeah, they have a very distinct way of, um, <laughs> I, I, I ended up with a bunch of like stuff, like a chem minor and an art minor and biology. Just, I, I, I really, I, I really enjoyed learning us. I had no idea what I wanted to do other than probably take over my parents' business and live in the place I grew up with and the rest of my life. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, just think of, of, of our network as a circle and it gets denser towards the middle and it grows by the next town or in the periphery. And there's a lot of efficiencies and you can grow quickly by growing like that versus, boy, jumping way over here and having to start a whole new network of clinics or one that's in by itself is, um, I, you know, the labor costs are higher. Everything about it's more expensive. You know, even the marketing costs are higher. I like to grow. I like to pick a town that I've that have already been marketing the docs in that town for three or four years, right? Um, and, and that's that's that that kind of growth. And, and you can you can lay up that way if you plan ahead to where okay, I'm going to grow in this spot, and it's it might add a little bit of expense in marketing here, but two thirds of it we've already been marketing, we're known, we're branded, and it's a little bit of new, and then a little bit of new, and you kind of to grow in that periphery and get denser and denser. And the strategy in the middle is, is you know, a bit of a suffocation strategy where you're dense enough. The other thing about our model, it's very decentralized. And because our only real competitor in a rural environment is, is often, a, you know, kind of a very insular health system. So I think if an accountant or an MBA looked at our clinics, they'd say, hey, shut down three of these and make one big centralized place, right? And, and the problem with that is the easiest way we found to compete with some of our health systems is to build small and around them. Mm -hmm. Because um, yeah, maybe their doc is telling them to drive in, but they're not gonna drive 20, 30 minutes to get there past the convenient location, right? So we have this small decentralized network around hospitals, but it's centralized in a way where I, every clinic has a set staff that's always there, but I have a layer of full-time floating staff that kind of breathes with the ebb and flow of a network of two or three clinics. So you end up staffing two or three clinics with less staff than if those three clinics weren't together, 
And you can do that in an intelligent way where it ends up saving a huge part of your labor costs, which is, you know, we're a service industry. That's a, that's a huge part of our costs. So that's, that's kind of way, the way I look at it. Yeah, that, that uh, genius. And even as you're talking right now, I'm applying it to what we've learned yeah. in private practice. And I would completely agree. And it's uh, the standalone satellite office that's one hour outside of our network is, yeah. is expensive. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're getting lucky there, but um, I, I, I can see completely resonate and agree with everything that you're talking about there. Um, talked about director to regional. There was something else that I wanted to ask you about. Um, oh, I know what it, de novo clinics. When you open a new clinic, you have a certain expectation that, you know, it, within six months, 12 months, maybe three years away, you have a expectation of how that clinic's gonna grow and ultimately you're gonna get a return on opening that new office. Can you talk a little bit about how you think through that? Um, and the, the other one that I would love for you to talk about is it, you, you're probably placing a 50 to $150,000 bet that, and you mentioned it's less expensive than to acquire another clinic yeah. to open a De Novo. So you don't have to give exact numbers, but you know, you for an owner that's listening here and they're thinking about opening that second clinic or maybe that third clinic, 10th clinic, how do you think through that process? Because you're apparently really, really good at this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know, really, really good, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of my reactions talking to a lot of people. And, and again, I, I, I emphasize this a lot. Some of our costs, because we're rural, like the, uh, the physical space much cheaper, but our labor costs are a little higher because it's really hard to get somebody to want to live and work here. So we have to, we have to kind of overshoot sometimes on the pay and, and benefit side, because if we turnover is a real killer for us, uh, you know, um, how many graduating classes in PT school, those kids are dreaming of living in Parkersburg, West Virginia, that they all want to live in Denver and Asheville and, and Columbus and Pittsburgh. Right. Um, so, so turnover is a real killer for us. So, so I don't think it, I still think it's relatively cheap to grow here, but when I'm talking to folks, yeah, I hear these estimates of like 150 to almost $200,000, 250, I've even heard someplace for every de novo. And man, yeah, if every de novo you're thinking you're going to see like 200 plus visits, great, maybe spend that much. But to me, that's way over the mark, right? Um, um, I'm, I'm thinking if you're not opening new clinics for, um, considerably less than $100,000. It, you're, you're not going to be able to do it quickly unless you just have an opportunity that's, yeah, you're talking. To me, the cost should be very proportional to the expectation of, of visits, right? Um, and um, for us, a, a good satellite that has the potential to hit 100 visits in three years is great, uh, but I'm not going to spend a ton of money on opening that that place, I'm, I'm way under $100,000, 50 possible, yeah, depends on where and how and, and how much how much the build-out costs, but I'm adding in the build-out costs to that number, you know, I'm adding the cost of signage and marketing, and again, that goes back to, you know, overlapping marketing and overlapping staff and overlapping um, um, resources, um, but, but in general, I hear the number numbers out there. And I just think people are spending too much on, on what it takes to really um, do a de novo well. Um, I, I think it'd be a lot lower than, than what you hear as the industry standard. Yeah, I, I think the ramp up time. Um, I like to break even in six months. 
Yeah. Wait. Agree. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 my and my break even is by definition, every clinic when I'm budgeting is it's it's not just that clinic's budget. Every clinic has based off of their percentage of visits is their percentage of the company's overhead. So to me, break even means if 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 a hundred visits represents you know five percent of the total company visits, break even to me is they're covering five percent of our total overhead plus that the expenses of that clinic. Do you do that to mitigate the centralized services? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. right. So so if if all of my clinics just broke even, everybody's salary is paid, the marketing budget, the TV budget, literally all expenses are covered, not just for that clinic, for the whole company. Great. Um, I, I want to ask you some questions about marketing. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, you, you uh, when we started working together, you had a full marketing team come in with uh, Josh and there was another... Keisha. Yes. Yeah. Uh, two or three people in the room. Um, so fascinating. You mentioned physician marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so you obviously have some irons in the fire there. Television, which is very rare for me to talk with another owner who dabbles in television. And I think you're developing it pretty well. Can you talk about um, the idea? I, I think for us to grow and expand as physical therapists, one of the truths that we have to come to is we have to own the media, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't compete with the large hospital systems that have budgets that are larger than our gross revenue for marketing. So can you talk about how you think about that, how you think about marketing and creating a footprint in uh, a growing area and ultimately influencing not only the referral sources, but also uh, the consumer directly as well? Um, yes, just a quick overview of history, just so you know where I'm com coming from is we have been traditionally driven by physician referrals. Um, and in the last two or three years, maybe even two years, you know, our big, what are you good at? What are you bad at? Terrible at three years ago, just not taking direct to consumer seriously. Um, and, and for a whole host of reasons um, that having to change, but I will say we're really good at physician referrals and it's and it's still out there i think i think people try to describe it as binary like you're one or the other which is yeah. which is just silly but but as a as a as a footprint you know each each area is a little different tv's a great example tv's absolutely not affordable in half of the places we're in and it's crucial in a third of the places we're in and it's a luxury in in the middle um third um, because, you know, we might be in a county where that TV station is just so dominant in terms of coverage that it's, it's covering, you know, um, a quarter of all your, all your clinics. Um, um, again, and role, Facebook is just a, such a powerful tool, I think, in role compared to some of the newer um, Instagrams. But, um, to, yeah, you know, to combat that marketing budget of, um, well, let me start with the physician side before we, we jump into uh, direct to consumer, because I, I think that's two really different problems. And the media thing to direct consumer is really tough. Uh, the physician side, it's funny, you might be dealing with a health system or a pop um, that has this huge marketing budget, but that huge marketing budget is divided up amongst service lines. And maybe PT only gets one month out of the year, 
And you'll see health systems cycle like that all the time. But the funny thing is they're terrible at least a lot of the ones we, we enter, they're not particularly great at internal marketing and they're not particularly great at internal marketing to the referral staff. And, and that's really who you're trying to speak to, not the physicians. You're trying to speak to the referral staff and figure out what makes their lives easier. Not that you exist, but what can you offer? Our, one of my favorite stories is, um, so we have, uh, I had, and again, this, this goes back to communication. This would have never happened if you don't have good communication loops. Um, I started getting these, these PTs telling me, I'm getting some goofy scripts, like just word salad from these docs, ultrasound, um, you know, high, fric uh, high friction massage, E-STEM McKinsey, right? Just like, they're not sentences. They're just, if you're throwing darts at PT speak and, and picking three or four, I'm like, that's goofy. And they're like, yeah, and it's happening a lot, just happened. It used to be a valid treat from the stock. So we went and talked to these docs and this health system had instituted an internal policy where they weren't allowed to put eval and treat um, when referring in-house. Um, they had to say something. Well, these docs said, I don't know anything about PT. So they were literally picking, ran this, these were the words they associated with our profession and they were just random and they hated it. And they were told this is, they had to do this to any physical therapy script. And we went in and said, hey, if you hate this, just put eval and treat and send them to us. And they're like, oh, we thought this rule was for all PTs. And it's like, no, this is just some internal rule. And, and we just ate their referrals for days of these physicians that work for this health system. And, and there's, you can really, the, the first thing, and I put this under marketing, is because, because that referral staff and those physicians is an audience. But I think people go about it again in the wrong way they're going in and trying to say i just took this class on this great new technique that's going to help your patients great and then on the right doc that you'll get lucky nine out of ten times that's the last conversation you want to have to get results quickly when you're we're marketing these folks you need to saturate them with we're going to do os for you we're going to send you the paperwork we're going to make it easy what do you need what's annoying about referring and we're going to solve those problems and do it ad nauseum we touch, and I know this, this sounds like an exaggeration, it's not, but between the PTAs that, so, so we have a group of PTAs that we use for marketing after we train them and our core marketing staff. Um, so we have hundreds of referral sources in our network or, or you know, in our geographic area. We stop by, touch um, each of those referral sources one time, once every three weeks. We call it the paper route. Um, and, uh, and it's, and it's a full-time, every day, somebody's on a paper route, doing a paper route. And it'll have themes some months, again, going back to this internal, hey, we're going to pass out this type of flyer this month and this. We're going to ask, how's it going? Is it easy to refer? If they say something, you almost hope for a problem sometimes because if you can show that you can fix it quickly, you establish that relationship. So, so I know you, you, your question was about media and I dodged it a little bit, but... Um, but I, I think people undervalue it, treating that office as a type of audience and not and being open-minded about the type of communication that gets their attention versus what they think gets their attention. Um, you know, when I look at our other markets, it's it's sometimes it feels like a kitchen sink thing, and you got to watch watch the budgets. Um, uh, not absolutely, I was not asked to say this at all. Uh, the breakthrough was a bit of a. a a moment for us when we realized, much like I'm preaching, physician marketing can be successful that direct to consumer 
um, marketing can be a totally different type of successful. Um, but again, I'm such an operations guy, the devil's in the details in terms of it was night and day on who we were having make the calls. It's success, right? I, I think sometimes people, these practice owners, get discouraged in that it's impossible when, when direct is consumer, if, if you really watch the details, is you know, you show me chat is is um, is is really doable if, if you learn how to do it, but it's it's a skill. Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer on media saturation when you're dealing with a, with a huge budget. I, I think you had an amazing answer. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let me give you some context because I know you appreciate how owners think through this. Here's what we see in the marketplace. And literally, this is, uh, I think, the last survey we had over 450 responders. The size of the practice depends on how many irons they're willing to put in the fire. So mm -hmm. a solopreneur, uh, single site, a uh, solo PT, maybe with a PTA and a front desk person, they're, they're literally uh, polarized. So there'll be all physician referrals because they have a group of physicians that they trust and no direct to consumer because they don't want to offend the physicians or they'll be all direct to consumer and despise physicians or physicians are evil or some, you know, there, there's a, there's a past bad experience. As we ascend on the the, the journey, and especially as um, we start to talk talk with owners that have multi locations, they've been in, they have a, a, a decade uh, or decades of pedigree in terms of the foundation of their company. Well, it, if you were around 10, 20 years ago, you had to have physician referrals in place. There was no other way, right? Um, you, you, you couldn't rely on direct to consumer because it wasn't available to us. Uh, legally or ethically, or just we didn't think it was possible, right? So what I hear you saying is we're really smart with physician marketing. Um, we have a team that I I hear hear talked about as boots on the ground, but yeah. you said the paper route. We, we call it shoe leather. <laughs> yeah, same idea, right? Um, you're going out. Uh, we do the same thing. We haven't completely abandoned physician referrals. We were just ha I was in a meeting this morning talking about. Uh, um, paying attention to the referral coordinators and how they're mm -hmm. making referrals because in our area, they're Googling physical therapy. Oh, wow. It is amazing to me. Um, so like just understanding how the physician makes a referral. And like you said, Simon, just being sensitive to what, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? Is it um, they get poor communication from the PT and then we figure out well, what's the best way to communicate? Is it a fax line? Is it um, you know, is there another way that we can share directly with you or do we just have the patient hand carry a report in to their appointment with you? What's that? That's our, yeah. And yeah. And we're good at empathy as clinicians. And, and I think sometimes I, the empathy stops at that physician store, you know, that, that referring staff has a task list. They can't take, they can't strike something off their task list until often they confirm an appointment has been scheduled that PT. But I hear so much from them saying, well, the PTs never tell us an appointment's confirmed. They never send their paperwork. And some of it's out of this attitude. You know, we're our own folks. We don't need to send it. But all you're trying to do is let that person have a shorter task list. And if you, so if you send appointment reminders, again, night and day difference. Hey, we're going to let you know when we have that initial eval scheduled so you can take it off your to-do list. 
you know, beautiful. Amazing. They love it. That's yep. it. That's all they're wanting. Yeah. Yep. Just find a need and fill it. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and the other thing too, and I came at this with a lot of skepticism, you know, uh, even uh, two or three years ago of, of direct to um, consumer for one of the things you mentioned was like, well, this is just make doctors mad. And it didn't at all. And we're going, full, we're really trying to learn how to do it and go full bore. In fact, at, we have a, a breakthrough back workshop coming up. And just funny enough, was it this morning or yesterday? We had a neurologist call or a neurosurgeon. I'm pretty sure it's a neurologist by the way the types of patients he's saying he's seeing that wants to come to the audience in that workshop because they saw all the ads and they're like, and they talked with us. They're like, hey, you're picking up a bunch of these PTs, but if you run into a bunch of red flag questions, you know, what do you do? It's like, you got to find a physician to refer to. Just be sitting in the audience. And, and I, I only use that as an example where it's the complete opposite of the impression I had three, four years ago of how, how open physicians would be to that, something like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I've heard owners call it uh, the rising tide, where it's, yeah. um, if we do this, then we actually get better relationships with our physicians long-term, or if we if we um, if we're already doing direct to consumer and now we start marketing to the physicians, our direct to consumer actually strengthens as well. Um, so cool there. Uh, I, I want to make sure we have time to talk about um, your forecast and contingency plan that you shared in WebPT um, in, in that article. So you talked about a I call it the grade of black financial planning. I, I believe that article was from an interview in January or February of 2020. Uh, well, maybe February or March, uh, early. Yeah, February. it was, it was, I was within a couple of weeks. It might've been April. It was, it was re really, really close to when we were either predicting the downturn or right when it happened. I, I agree with you because I think you even referenced March 30th in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it was, yeah. Cause there was a weekend where, you know, the previous week looked good and the next week looked bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that. <laughs> so I, I think you in there you talked about a, a 50% reduction in visit flow. Yeah. Um, the did any of your clinics completely shut down? How no. did you think? Okay, so you were able to stay open um, in the areas that you were in in Ohio and West Virginia. Um, the the financial planning. How did you think through that? Um, in order, I know one of the things that you talked about there was you know decreasing costs that you could decrease. Right. Yeah. How did you think through that, and how did you maintain your calm, calmness? You know, and so so leading up to it, before any of this happened, and I think this is this is just a philosophical difference. And I've talked to a lot of, of business guys that, that think I'm crazy. Is um, we before COVID even happened, we approached we we approached cash flow with some inherent caution and, and skepticism because you'd run into these insurance companies that would have a credentialing issue or a computer issue or the government would shut down and Medicare is not going to pay you. And, and you just, you had this idea of uh, almost like a prepping attitude a little bit. Not that I had a huge cash reserves, but I didn't have a lot of debt. Um, and, and I didn't have to incur debt to get through COVID, but it already led to a type of, of cash flow management where it was a pay as you go. Um, and, and, and adjust accordingly. So I think we were already in that mindset a little bit, but then when we went into it, um, I think th the first thing we, we really quickly 
realized is, is the volume there wasn't, wasn't there to sustain the cost. And we had a huge advantage with the unemployment um, bonus that it passed. And I think that also led to a lot of the decisions. And even now, some of that's there. So we ended up doing quite a bit of layoffs to get through it, but they were all voluntary. Uh, uh, you know, I just said, hey, uh, who, who would be made whole? Who's comfortable not being around COVID and, and, and adjusting those labor costs? Um, but the way we did it via spreadsheet, and again, this, this goes back to just knowing your operations well, we, we could roughly project, here's the visits we build for, and, and we build pretty much in real time. The stuff, we, the stuff we do today goes out within one, two, three days, uh, the majority of it. We know in a curve, and it's a curve, when, when the majority of that is gonna come in, you know, three, four, six weeks later. Depends on the insurance, but when you add them all up, you can actually, uh, really had that curve and know the percentage uh, pretty well of, of, of when it comes in, you know, 60% of it's gonna come in this many weeks, 30%. And when you have all that data, you can project out what your, um, what your cash intake's gonna be. Because the other advantage of how it happened and it being a cliff, although cliff's awful, is that, okay, you had this cash flow for, you know, three, four, five weeks, depending on, on how you run your billing, on when you knew that was gonna dry up too. So it's almost like you had this lead time to make the decision. And, and the way we thought of it is, we're gonna take advantage of that lead time and keep adjusting to where um, the visits we're seeing this week, um, we will be, we have three weeks to be able to be breaking even on those visits. We have three weeks to adjust costs before we see that interruption in cash flow. Right, and then we readjust, and then we readjust. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be, you don't have to make that adjustment, you know, tomorrow for cash coming in tomorrow because we all have this state delayed cash flow from what we're doing. Uh, but you know, here's my window by this by this date, I need to make the adjustment, and that's and that's how we how we got through COVID. We we stayed within that window. Um, you know, if I was seeing, um, you know, we got down to Right before COVID, we were seeing 3,000 visits a week. I think in weeks. I, everybody else I talk to business-wise wants to talk in quarters or months. And I don't know. I feel like any PT operational person thinks in weeks. I, that's Or maybe it's just me. Uh, so I can almost only speak in weeks. Um, we were seeing 3,000 visits a month or, or a week. Um, very quickly, we were at 1,400 visits a week. Um, and, and, and I could ramp up, but I had to start making decisions where within four weeks, I knew I was close to expenses for that kind of money coming in, right? Um, and, it, and it slowly ramped up for that. And that's, that's kind of how we thought about it. Great. Um, you, you kind of alluded to this, but I, I saw it in the article and you talked about ramping down at the same time, balancing that with maintaining trust with your staff. Mm -hmm. And I think what I heard you say is you had conversations with your staff, with your team about who wanted to go home yeah. uh, because of COVID reasons and uh, do go the unemployment a route. A whole bunch of reasons. It was a really big surprise because, because you had that faith to business. At no point, you know, one of those lessons your folks pass on and something I heard ad nauseum from my dad is, you know, bet, if you're going to bet on something, bet on yourself, right? We never thought we were going to shut that it was bad, 
and, and you could see it was going to be bad. Um, but you want to ramp up. And, and one of the reasons we're in this is, is to protect our employees and have the positive work environment. And one of the leadership things I think that I saw other folks make is try to do too much of this behind closed doors in those situations and people make wrong assumptions. Once we were very open, it's like, look at the visits, here's where we're at. But I want a conversation with every employee also about what they're feeling because a lot of them had grandparents that they were interacting with and they felt uncomfortable about being in the clinics. They do it, but they, they were looking for the exit that could be a temporary exit. Um, and that helped keep their trust, let them do that exit and take care of the cost. You only got there if you had very open communication. Honestly, in that time period, via email, text, or call, and I really tried to do calls with anybody that didn't have a, basically I sent out a, a, a blast email that said, let me know if you need to talk and here's the subjects we can talk about. Pretty comfortable, you know, how's your clinic doing? Um, and this is non-clinic, this is to every employee. I ended up talking to anybody personally that wanted to have a conversation about it. And it was 150 people, but not all of them wanted to have a conversation. But once you got through there, uh, so many of the problems with that communication ended up solving themselves because we had a lot of people that wanted to take a pause because it was a scary time and we needed to lose a chunk of people temporarily and scale it back up. Um, one of the things we did to incentivize that that I think helped is um, for people who volunteered, we gave them some incentives to help cover their insurance costs uh, at 100%. And, and that and that helped immensely find volunteers because we knew we needed, we had the number in our head. I had a big board of, I need week to week to shed this expense, right? How am I gonna do it? And, and, and we had, had goals like that. But yeah, a lot of it came down to communication and it builds trust when you're open like that and people aren't surprised, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, completely agree. And uh, yeah, Lencioni's Pyramid, not sure if that was part of the MBA training, but uh, I know it the been a, a, a pass the test, to, <laughs> to know, right? Uh, Foundation yeah. is trust. Yeah. <laughs> um, I so you, you talked also in that article about ramping back up. Um, I, I assume you're back to normal or close to no. beyond. Oh, you're not back to normal. No, uh, no, no. I, I, I'd say we're we're still eighty percent. Okay, so twenty four hundred visits a week. Yeah. Ish. Mm -hmm. um, Ish. I, I'd say, yeah, we're, we're probably 24, we had all the snow where we'd be at uh, 2,400 last week, this week, and we're probably looking at 2,500 within the next year. It's ramping up quickly now, but, you know, uh, um, the providers around us are still also in, in my region, not at a, a normal level. Yeah, um, agreed. The, the, you talked about re-engaging past patients. Um, yeah. How oh, oh huge, hugely important. One of the big things that took a lot of communication, then we slacked off on that communication and, and, and ramped back up and, and this is almost director. It's, it's funny. It, it flexes the same muscle we're learning that you have to build in your clinical staff to do director consumer well is those cultivating those lists, checking in with those patients. It's not a sales call. It's not saying, hey, get back on the schedule because you know we're 35 to 
Medicare, depending on what clinic of mine you're looking at. You know, so a lot of these, these folks is, you know, for good reason aren't in the clinic. Uh, but it's like, hey, we're here when you find it safe. These are the, these are the measures we're taking to make it safe. Um, and just checking in with them. How are you doing? What do you need? Um, you, we did a little bit of telehealth at one point. I think it was maybe got up to 5% of our visits. We maxed out, but it's just, it, I don't know, a combination of us not trying hard enough and then not catching on here. But interestingly enough, a lot of the skills to ha have weekly meetings, to have your staff make call lists of patients that have fallen through the cracks, I found is great repetition and exercise and practice for building the skills they need to start doing direct-to-consumer better in the future. So a lot of the folks in the pipeline, and they probably don't even realize this, but they won't care because it won't seem different, is even when we're out of COVID, we're gonna keep doing some of these calls and we're gonna keep doing some of this, this stuff, and, but we're practicing something that seems logical to staff that aren't used to those calls now and we'll be able to transition to those type of calls later. It's, it's kind of how I'm thinking of it. Yeah, pretty smart. And I appreciate what you said earlier too about the competencies because it is a different skill set yeah. from physician marketing. Um, so a little bit of uh, word association. In that article, you also talked about uh, exploring revenue diversification. Did you do that at all? Let me, let me I, have, I should have regret it. Um, I, I think it was talking about cash pay. Okay, yeah, um, ca cash, we, we have it. It, uh, in fact, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a curmudgeon on cash pay. I just, it's, it's not for us. I think it's successful in certain niche markets. It's successful when you're, when you're living in, a, in an area with, with high discretionary income. It's not a good solution for us because that's not our de demographic. I think here's, here's really what is on my mind. Um, and and I, I haven't got there, but I'm, I'm, I'm building this, the, the skills to get there. I mean, yeah, diversification and direct to, um, um, you know, more uh, pre-employment screens or, or direct, uh, instead of going through the insurance, contracting directly with um, uh, an employer. But here's, here's where I really want to go, and I haven't gotten there yet. It's more of a time thing, but where, where, I, where I need to go is, is more telehealth that, that potentially is, is cash. Um, um, telehealth, using it to soften up markets that then I want to do brick and mortar in first. Like you do the telehealth first, you advertise it, you do some there, and then you move in with your, your brick and mortar. Um, um, and the other, th the, I, the other thing I think I was referencing in that article that I have a trial of, that's going so-so, but it hasn't got the attention it deserves, is contracting directly with insurance brokers or insurance companies for a lump sum fee for them to have telehealth access to us. So I'll tell you where, where this is going and just this idea of playing with is, and I'll, I'll put it out there because I think this is what in private practice have to figure out. So if somebody else figures it out, go for it. You know, because I know you don't want to live in Parksburg, West Virginia. So not that, <laughs> you know, go, go do it in your hometown. But here, here's the idea. And I had an insurance broker really interested in it. So I have this network of clinics that any given day has, you know, cancels, no shows or blank spots. Um, and, and we're all used to Zoom and, and coordinating virtually now. So I had this idea where I could go to an insurance broker or insurance company and say, hey, for this big employer, or for everybody covered under this insurance, they get, you know, 
access eight to five, five days a week. You, you can schedule appointment or call this number and you're gonna have a PT on the other end. And we're not gonna charge you for whatever it's like, my shoulder hurts, here's some exercises. I just want a subscription fee. I want you to pay me $60,000 a year and you get tele-access eight to five, five, uh, five days a week. And I staff that with literally just efficiencies in this network of clinics where I'm blocking off everybody an hour here and an hour there based on their stuff. So I'm, literally it cost me nothing in labor, but, and, and the whole idea was for me to be able to, uh, I like these micro goals, to be able to self, to fund through these subscriptions, employee bonuses. Right. So I, I like, you know, here's X number of dollars in a year I like to give to employees. I said, you know, I bet I could do a subscription service through these brokers and insurance companies and 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 pay for all my employee bonuses in a year. I don't know. This is one of the goals. And so I went to this broker and we're, we're working on some pilot programs where where that's what we're trying to build up to, where they they pay me like an annual subscription service for unlimited access via tele to uh, to the staff. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty revolutionary. It, it, we'll see. Yeah. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's great. The you had something else in there. Um, I know what you had mentioned that now, during the pandemic, during the downturn, was a great time to start working on the business. Yeah. You had also mentioned networking with other owners, and I, I, I'm just curious. What did you notice other owners working on in terms of reformatting their business? And was there anything uh, that you know stood out to you that you did yourself? Or were you mainly focused on ramping up with the, the aforementioned initiatives that you've, you've had here? Um, a couple parts, and maybe this is a personality thing. I, more than any other time, found solace in talking to other practice managers. It's funny because we're now used to it, but man, I don't know, and, and the practice owners listening to this and, and you yourself, gosh, that first three or four months was just so stressful. And, and, and you were dealing with issues and worries and dilemmas that I don't think it was easy to talk to somebody else about unless they were dealing with the same thing. So, so just on a confidence level to be able to talk to other practice managers of almost any kind, right? I talked to physician practice managers. I did a lot more of that than I had ever done before. Uh, I think I just needed it. Uh, um, no, I think, I think most of the stuff we tried was, was pretty unique to our business. Um, I think a lot of the folks that I knew that were like us doing more physician, they all had to, they all tried to start thinking more about direct consumer than they had in the past. I think everybody gravitated that way. I saw a lot of people trying to do more telehealth than, than we did. And I think a lot of people were a lot more successful with it than we were. And I still don't know if that's our demographic or if that's just effort. Cause I, I definitely talked to people that were able to do a lot more telehealth than we did. Um, and, and some other really clever ideas in terms of over um, how to deal with cancellations you know, I knew one practice manager that did this concept of, I'm very anti-operationally, never have a waiting list. Get the patient in, get that eval in, you know, and, and if you have cancels, call the eval on Friday, if it's Tuesday, and see if they can come in on Tuesday, right? Um, they, they went the exact opposite, and they said, I want a three-week waiting list. 
and I want to train the people on my waiting list that they might get any call any time to be in. And they incentivize their front desk with the dollar amount to fill cancels. Just the exact opposite of everything I've ever done with training my <laughs> front desk, right? And, it, and, and you know, like waiting lists are the devils. And, and here they're basically running like at the end of the day, having days with no cancellations because as they get cancellations, they're filling them in real time and then incentivizing the, the front desk to do it using a, a, a waiting list they've, they've cultivated, but they also cultivated with the patients like, here's our process, we're special. And they are one clinic place that's very niche and, um, and, and that's, that's a big part of their marketing is special, but, but saying, so you might, you're on this list, but you might get a call to come in this afternoon. So they train their, their waiting list about that. And it's, wow, what a, what an efficiency game. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a bunch of, so not all of the stuff I would implement, but it, I found it to be really thought provoking and, and useful. That's great. I, I appreciate you sharing there. Um, Simon, this was amazing. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. This is super fun. I came in with a lot of notes uh, and I, I, I left with twice as many. So <laughs> we covered marketing, de novo clinics, acquisitions, uh, surviving COVID with your uh, financial planning. We talked a little bit about finances and also um, your, uh, your, your journey as a private practice. Yeah. The, only, the only other thing real quick, Chad, if you don't mind that just in my head, I'll put it out there because I know this is private practice owners and, and it sounds like we scaled up big. Um, the only other advice I would give, and I'm bold enough, I don't usually like giving advice, is if you don't have a robust student program, I would re and you're interested in growth, rethink, reevaluate that decision, or you know, think it over. It fundamentally, our growth was due to a lot of things. It wasn't all my brilliance. A lot of it was me me starting, uh, me starting a student program and treating those universities like I treated those doctors. Just a higher level of communication, what they want, what they need. Close, frequent contacts, not passive, than I, I think most other people do, and treating them like an audience that needs marketed, um, because you can't grow unless you have that pipeline of staff. Yeah, pipeline was the exact word that I had in my head, uh, the PT pipeline. <laughs> um, so one more nugget, that's great. Simon, just yeah. out of curiosity, if, uh, if somebody wanted to reach you or look up what you're up to at uh, First Settlement PT, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, you just I mean, call me. I don't get that many calls uh, or, or email me. Uh, uh, you, you might not want, we, we had quite a few downloads. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, so yeah. here's my email. How yeah. about let's go with email. It's, it's the, the initials of the company. Uh, so the company's first settlement physical therapy. So F is in Frank, S is in Sam, P is in Paul, T is in Tom, FSPT, Simon, S-I-M-O-N dot Hargus, H-A-R-G-U-S at gmail.com. And yeah, email me. I, I, I love to talk. Just, just be forewarned. I love to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, Simon, I appreciate, uh, number one, you sharing your experience. Also, uh, your time here as well, as I know you're very busy running a, a large operation. So thanks again for doing this. No, absolutely. This is, this is great. I, I, I th the empowering other practice owners is, is fantastic, Chad. I really appreciate you, you doing this.